Now, I want to encourage you to do something that perhaps sounds really uncomfortable for you or just kind of crazy or far-fetched. Several years ago, Pam and I began, and it just kind of evolved, is that as we approach the Thanksgiving season, we meet folks and we meet friends, and, and in our conversation, we'll say to them, so what are you doing on Thanksgiving? And, and sometimes they'll say, well, we really don't have plans, or I don't have family in town. And so somebody asked me this week, who's coming to your house for Thanksgiving? I don't know. I know some, but by the time we get there, I'm not sure because we just keep inviting people. We just keep saying, hey, come on over. And so we've got people coming, and, and it's a good eclectic group of people, and we're just looking forward to it because it's not just their traditional, usual people. So I'm inviting you to invite others as you're talking with them, and even as you met some folks today and maybe meet them after, as, as you're talking, say, hey, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? And if you find some folks that aren't doing anything or are not connected, well, you say, but it's usually just my family. If you're a follower of Jesus, your family is much larger than your biological family. And we are responsible for each other. And I can't think of anything to be greater for you and more enriching if you'd invite others to join with you. So add some more places to the table and add a little bit more food and, and let it happen and invite other people. Will you do that? Yes, you will. Absolutely. I want to show you something this morning. It says this, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, be a start. Anybody know what that is? Ha, ha, ha. Those people who raise their hands have played the early version of Nintendo's Contra. This is a cheat code. Contra is a game where you as a player are, are stuck on a island jungle and you are, you are fighting against some evil alien terrorists. And it is so difficult that most people cannot make it through alive and escape before all of their lives are gone unless before the title page is fully loaded, you punch in, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, be a start. If you do, you get 30 lives. 30. Enough to outlive the evil. Isn't that what it's all about for us, to outlive the evil? Some of you have tried to cope with that this week, and it just feels so devastating to you. We've been talking about trying to break out of those layers of issues and situations and evil and, and cultural whatevers that, that just push on us to keep us from going beyond our frustrations, our current pain are repetitive failures. It's what Paul the Apostle was dealing with even back in the first century when he wrote to his friends in the city of Corinth. He said, I know you're dealing with these issues and you've got to break out of this thing. You've got to get free. You've got to outlive the evil. And so before he got through his title page, if you will, in the very beginning of his letter, he gives them some cheat codes. And he says, if you do this, you will outlive the evil. And so he begins with this first of all. He says, it's more than we think. It's more than we think. I don't know anybody that can probably stir an audience like Bishop T.D. Jakes. Listen to this. 
You have to fix the mind before you can bestow the blessing because until they get their mind right, everything you invest in them is going to leak out of the crevices of a mind that refuses to change. Look at your neighbor and ask him, do you have a mind to change? Now, didn't he just suck you in? If I lived in Dallas, I'd go to that church. I don't know of anybody who can take deep theological thoughts and bring them to the surface in some simplistic ways as Bishop N.T. Wright. This is what he sounds like. The beginning surprise is the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a great many Christians who are a bit That surprised a lot of people, especially it, the Romans. It, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and, and the early Christians themselves, they weren't expecting it at the time. You know, it took them by surprise. He told them, though. Yeah, he told them, but they didn't get it. It says mm-hmm. they didn't get it, and they're kind of, you know... That's Bishop N.T. Wright with Stephen Colbert. And then, if, 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 if I lived in Scotland, I know that... that I would go listen to that man. I don't know of any worship gathering, and I love our worship gatherings here, but probably if I had opportunity, I think one of the greatest places that I would want to be to involve myself in experiencing worship and and musical expressions of worship would be at Hillsong in Sydney, Australia. Sounds like this. love that. It just stirs me. And that's the problem with my thinking. It actually goes beyond my thinking. If I believe that it's those people, if it's Jake's or, or N.T. Wright or, or Hillsong that stirs me, I've lost what truly is the truth. It's what Paul was talking to and his friends when he first began this letter. He said, look, you guys are you're just focused on who stirs you. Some of you say that, you know, it's, it's really, it's Paul that stirs me. And some said, no, it's, it's, it's Cephas that stirs me. And some said, no, it's Apollos who stirs me. We do it in our modern day now, in, 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 centuries after Paul. We do it, we say, no, it's Reisner, no, it, it, it's, 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 it's Fisher, no, it, it's... It's that church or this church, it, it, and we just, we just, and, and it's, it's Dave Perkins here leading worship. No, no, it's Mark Furman who does it. And we have these ways that we, we put it all together and say, this is what stirs me, and that's who it should be that leads me. And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 get a clue here. It's way beyond what you think. The truth of the matter is this, that human impression weakens spiritual confidence. I hold in my hand here a card that I've saved. It is a love expression from my wife, and in the front of it says, you and me, and it's a couple holding hands, and I won't tell you what it says on the inside. And I love this card. It's impressive to me. 
It's just beautiful. It says it's simply, but it's impressive. And I love this card. It's, it's not a Hallmark card, and I'm sorry, but it's, it says papyrus on the back. And so it's a papyrus card. But I've got to tell you what I don't do. I don't put this under my pillow at night and throughout the night wake up and go, Oh, I love you, card. I love this card. Oh, I get shivers with this card. This Friday night, I didn't call up and say, Card, would you like to go to the movies? I didn't take the card with me and put it on the seat next to me and snuggle up to the card and share my popcorn. The card is only an apparatus to reveal the deep thoughts of the one who loves me most. Everything human is only an apparatus to reveal the deep thoughts of the one who loves us most. And so Paul phrases it this way to his friends, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 13. I ask you, has the Messiah Messiah been chopped up in little pieces so we can each have a relic all our own? Was Paul crucified for you? Was a simple one of you, a single one of you baptized in Paul's name? God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ, in fact, say those words with me, Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. Now, when he's used the expression, fancy rhetoric, it actually translates, and maybe in your translation, as human wisdom, impressive words, persuasive rhetoric, deep, powerful reasoning. It's your ability, if you will, to convince or to stir to action because of your own human effort. And Paul says, God forbid that I do that. I am not going to impress you because it would defeat what God wanted to accomplish. I have a relative who, for a lot of years, would not gather with the community of faith to worship. He's a follower of Jesus, but he would not gather And he had his reasons, but what he would do every Sunday is he would download, or during the week, download the podcasts from Rob Bell. And he would only listen to Rob Bell because Rob Bell was the best. He's the one who stirred him, and that's the only person he would listen to, and that's what he did. Now, with that mentality, and maybe that is the best, I would say to you, let's disband the churches, find the five or six best speakers in the country, and let's just download them and do that because they're the best because they stir us. See, it's dangerous because, because you, you have abilities. You have giftings. You have ways to express your faith and your love for God. You have ways to stir people by your giftings. In fact, I just want a response. I'm going to ask some of you, what are the things that you, just, you do in faith to God? What are the things, how do you express? It could be song. It could be you play an instrument. You write. You serve people. What do you, what do, you do? Right here. Somebody tell me. Don, what do you do? You make noise on the drums. Absolutely. What do you do? You make noise also? What kind of noise? On the harmonica. Oh, Troy, I didn't know that. How many want to hear Troy on the harmonica sometime? Yeah. Cindy, what do you do? You sing along with others. Anybody else? Lucy, what do you do? You worship? 
Some of you in here serve other people, don't you? So now I have a question for you. In whatever you do, are there people in this country or the world that probably do it better than you? Well, then why are you bothering? Let's just forget you. Let's just take the people that are best at it. Paul says it never, ever has been about human impression. Never. I know a guy that in D.C. was an incredibly powerful man, Washington, D.C. And he hung around with very impressive people, great orators, powerful men and women, incredible minds. And he would have these conversations with them and think tanks with them that would would help shape foreign policy. One day he's walking to his office and it's protected and so he went through the gate and there was a guard seated there in the little place where they sit and the guard had his Bible in front of him and this, this guy looks at him and says, do you read that? He said, oh yeah. He said, do you know much about it? He said, yeah. He said, I'm just discovering some stuff about it. Could I get with you and you tell me what you know about this? So he said, sure. So they set up a time and this very impressive, powerful Washington, D.C., impressive guy shows up to meet with this unimpressive, blue-collar, non-degreed, not very impressive guy, and they sit down and they start talking about the scriptures. And the guy explains what he knows about the scriptures and especially about what he knows about Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And after a couple sessions, the guy said, well, this sounds really good. How would I put my faith in this Jesus? And this powerful, impressive man sitting with a very unimpressive man watches his life be transformed by his expression of faith in Jesus. How did that happen? Not by human impression. What Paul shows us is this, that Christ on the cross outlasts and outwits The Jews came to Jesus and they said, hey, do more miracles. Show us the miracles. And Jesus said, I'm giving you no more miracles, which is a problem because if he's the Messiah, then he must replicate what the God Jehovah did getting them out of Egypt. And he must do more miracles to show that he truly is the Messiah. And Jesus turns to them and says, I will only give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. What did Jonah have? Jonah had no miracles. Jonah only had a message and his very presence. And Jesus said, that's all you're getting. And they said, not very impressive. And especially when later he was beat up and then killed. Not very impressive. Why would I put my faith in that? And the Greeks who were observing all of this and and watching Jesus and knew his history, even after his death, These ones who lived on reasoning and intellectual ability, who created incredible civilizations, said, show us something reasonable, something impressive, and then we'll perhaps put our faith in you. Dead messiahs are not very impressive. And so they didn't. And that's the rub that what Jesus does so often to us in our culture does not seem to be very impressive. And here's what Paul says 
in response to that, 1 Corinthians 1, 22. While Jews clamor for miraculous demonstrations and Greeks go in for philosophical wisdom, we go right on proclaiming Christ the crucified. Jews treat this like an anti-miracle and Greeks pass it off as absurd. But to us who are personally called by God himself, and I want you to circle that personally called. To us who are personally called by God himself, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up in one. How absurd. Jesus died as a criminal of the state. And the Jews knew this. According to the Old Testament, anybody who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. Jesus hung on a tree, therefore he's cursed of God. So even if somehow he died on a tree and rose again, I'm not putting my faith in him because he's already cursed by God. That would be like you taking Charles Manson and pardoning him and then asking him to be your daughter's Sunday school teacher. Rather scandalous. But Paul says that the unique thing about all of this, no matter what you think in your culture, is that this one on the cross is calling us. Verse 24, again, he said this, but to us who are personally called by God himself, Christ is God's ultimate miracle and wisdom all wrapped up into one. Therefore, and here is your next cheat code if you're gonna get through this life, we are more than we believe. We are more than we believe. So I'm gonna ask you the question. I referred to it earlier in our worship gathering. Who will be sitting at your table at Thanksgiving? I want to do something that I normally don't do, but I want to share with you something I shared with you last year, but because I think it is so relevant again to this year, I want to show it to you again and answer the question, who's going to be sitting at your table? Have you ever stopped to think about uh, how the centerpiece of Thanksgiving is not so much the food as much as it is the table? I mean, we really shouldn't be surprised because when you look at the ministry of Jesus, at the epicenter of his kingdom strategy was this table fellowship. It's really what ultimately got him into trouble uh, with the religious elite. He said, you know what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, which basically is uh, if you want to know how God thinks, how God acts, who God's going to hang around with, then watch me. And here he is sitting with prostitutes and tax collectors, people literally they called uh, people of the land. And it caused these religious elite to have a major theological nosebleed because there's no way that God could see these people as having honor and having worth. And yet Jesus took that and turned it completely upside down. And he said, let the little ones come unto me. And he reached into the gutters. He reached over the edge and into the margins. And he sat around the table and fellowshiped with them and brought them honor and brought them worth. At the center of his kingdom strategy wasn't the menu. It was the guest list. You know, this Thanksgiving may be just a little bit leaner than last Thanksgiving. You know, maybe you'll experience and feel some uh, anxiety and some worry about the external circumstances, uh, not just in the country, but in the world. But maybe that's a blessing in disguise. Maybe this Thanksgiving, 
uh, can really be an opportunity for, for you, for your family, for your church, for all of us um, to move from focusing upon just the provisions of God and focusing upon the presence of God to move from focusing upon um, the menu <laughs> to focusing upon the guest list. You know, what would Thanksgiving be like if you reimagined it? What would your Thanksgiving look like if you or your family or your church um, were to, uh, to set a couple of extra chairs up for individuals that were just lonely and, and touched the lives of individuals um, that maybe didn't have any market value, didn't have any honor, lonely people, people who have no one else. You know, in our country today, some 35 to 40 percent of elderly actually live by themselves. They have no one else. And you see Jesus on a regular basis uh, reaching to people who were alone. Uh, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus, and inviting them even to something as simple as just uh, uh, to share water with. What would it look like if you started off with uh, a menu as simple as bread and wine and remembered uh, that incredible presence of Christ and God in our lives. This Thanksgiving may have a little anxiety, it may have a little worry, but what would it look like if your Thanksgiving was, uh, was driven by love and graciousness and not anxiety and worry and fear? What would your Thanksgiving look like if you were to focus upon the guest list uh, and not the menu? Here's the fascinating thing. We are on his guest list. And you say, but wait, wait, wait. It's not so fascinating. Isn't that the guy who was so powerless that they put him on a cross? And he wasn't even guilty? Oh, but, but you're missing it. Because of what he did there, he overpowered all his enemies by love and forgiveness. That's why you get invited to the table. You say, but, but he got himself killed. That's so foolish. No, it's genius. Because the problem with sin, the problem with evil, is it continues to replicate itself and nobody could stop it. Century after century, it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And how do you stop that except he took all of that on his own self and he brought it to a dead end and by his death, he killed its power. Absolute genius. And that's why he invites us to the table. Let it fascinate you. I want to encourage you this morning to find your value in God's selection. See who he chooses to invite to that table. And Paul describes it. Chapter 1, verse 26. He says this. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of you as the brightest and the best among you, not many influential and not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses and chose those no nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. 
The majority of the people that Paul was talking to, they were not the people with clout. They were not the people with money. They were not the people with great ancestry. They were not the people with the great minds. He said that's not who you were. In fact, listen as he, as he describes them a couple chapters later in this letter. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, he mentions this. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you once were once like that. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of of our God. He said, the people that I invited to my table were people that holy people wouldn't hang out with, but I invited them, and some of you were those people. And I got you to come to my table, and you sat there, and you listened to what I would do for you. And you chose to follow me. And by doing that, he said, I was able to expose the false the false culture that surrounds us, that the people who, who are saddest seekers, those who are power brokers, those who are into celebrity, he said, I, by calling you, announced that their way is on its way out. All of that impressiveness is on its way out. But what is on its way in is that I want you to come to your father who created you open-handed, and you cannot come and bring him anything that will impress him. What will impress God that you have? What will he be fascinated with and go, ooh, look at that. Oh, come on in, because I've never seen that before. He said, I invite you open-handed. I let you come here because you are on the guest list. And so I encourage us this morning that we find our confidence in Jesus' perfection. Sometimes I'll walk out of our walk-in closet. We have a small walk-in closet and and I'll walk out after changing in there. I'll walk out, and, and Pam will look at me, and she'll go, <clears throat> I said, what? She said, are you really going to wear that? Which means, no, I'm not. I said, what? And she'll say, well, come here. And she'll pull out some pants and a sweater and a shirt. And she'll go, this is really nice. So if I wrap myself in her choices, I can walk out in confidence knowing that I'm looking good. When we walk out of our impressiveness, out of our status-seeking culture, our celebrity worship, when we walk out looking that way, Jesus goes, what? Are you really going to wear that? He says, here, put this on. And if we wrap ourselves in his choices, the Father looks at us and says, looking good, looking really good. Paul described it this way, 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. We have messed up so bad in our relationships. How many of you have offended somebody within the last year? 
the last month, the last week, this morning before coming here to worship. How many of you have offended God recently? It's all over our clothes, the stain and the ugly. It's just in our messes. It's just there. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You can't go to the Father looking that way. So I'm going to put on you, and he uses the word justification. And that word simply means to be dressed like God dresses in his home. He says, here, put this on. And God looks at it and goes, oh, looking good. Now, in all candor, how many of you have ever had a Maybe you shouldn't raise your hand on this. I'll just state it, and you just think it. How many of you have ever had a dream where you ended up someplace public in your underwear? Ever had one of those? Or even worse, nothing on? That embarrassment, I equate to what I would call unholy. It's what Isaiah declared when he got in God's presence and he said, I've become undone. I'm standing before God in my underwear and it doesn't look very good. And Jesus said, here's what I'm going to do for you. Because of Jesus on the cross, because what he did for you, he said, I'm going to clothe you with holiness. And it simply means the beauty and the abilities of God on you. So that God looks at you and goes, oh, that looks really good on you. Not because you deserved it, not because you earned it. He just put it on you. Now, because of our offenses to God, we know that we got outside his home. We got almost imprisoned away from him. And we want to be back in there enjoying all that God has to offer us. And so Jesus says, here, I'm going to give you this. And so he puts on us a label. And the label says the wrong thing. Here we go. The label says all access. Jesus says, here, put this on, and you can go wherever you need to go, wherever the Father wants you to go. You can enjoy all the brilliance and the beauty of God. See, all of these three things all deal with the same thing. Jesus on the cross this morning as we were worshiping. I was feeling bad about how I had not done some things this week that I thought God wanted me to do, and I'm blown it. I just messed it up. And I'm thinking, I can't really worship you. And then he reminded me, he said, wait a minute. Are you wearing what Jesus put on you? Have have you come to that spot where he's put on you what God wears at home? Has he put on you the beauty and the abilities of God? Has he given you an all-access pass to walk wherever God wants you to go? So don't hesitate. Go into that spot. Find your confidence there and worship him and love him because you've got access. The stuff that you messed up, it's been covered. Now go. Well, who paid for me to get in all-access? And Jesus would say, just look on the cross. I paid for that. It's what they felt as they sat at his table. And at that moment, they could give up their old life and be clothed in this new life. And when they did that, you know what Paul called it? Some of your translations, Paul says this. What I want you to do is not boast in the impressiveness of humanism, but I want you to boast in the Lord. And the word boast is more than just brag about him. It actually means to put your faith in him and live it out. Boast in him. Because if you do that, we will discover that we can perform more by less. Don't let the word perform throw you. The actual wording 
As you break it down, the English word perform comes from two words meaning complete and furnish. You can completely furnish what is needed and more by doing less. And this, I'm not advocating laziness. I'm not advocating not preparing for what you need to do. In fact, I'm saying that because it's for God, it should be done with excellence. But your confidence cannot be in your human effort. Paul said you can't do that, but it must be in God and his completeness. So Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is, Jesus on the cross. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of God's, or the Spirit's power. He said, that's what I've come to bring you, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. See, when Paul showed up at Corinth, we know this, he didn't come with confidence and he didn't come comparing himself with other people. In fact, he came sick. He came with weakness in his body. He was already described as a short man, not very good looking and bald. And he comes, some say, with an eye problem where his, he couldn't focus and his eyes were bulging out and he just looked not very good, not impressive at all, not your front man for the gospel, not the guy that you would send to impress people. He said, I was just weak. I, was, I, just, I, I, I didn't have it. In addition to that, he came with a phobia. Something had, had frightened him to the degree that he would not even go public and declare who Jesus was. He was so intimidated by the impressiveness of the city, by this hedonistic, demonized city, that he didn't say a word. It's as if this Jesus on the cross, this good news that Paul had, this thing that was supposed to shake the world, this thing that was to be untamed, had now been captured by human wisdom and held up by the scruff of the neck to be made a spectacle of. Got a picture that illustrates that. Can you see that? He's got a bear cub in his hands. A bear cub who is supposed to be dangerous. A bear cub who's supposed to be unhinged and, and unfettered. Fearless. See, part of my concern about our church today in America, and even us, is that we try to impress others to believe that we are a community of faith untamed and powerful, but yet we are controlled by our culture. So you know what Paul did? He didn't try to impress anybody. He just simply did this. He said, I told them about Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, and it seems so unimpressive, but it just shook the place. It was so incredibly powerful. So I'm going to ask you to do two things understanding what Paul has been telling us here. They're not on your notes. You're going to have to write them down, or if you can't write them down, then you can remember them, two things with two words each. The first one is this. Jump off. Say that with me. Jump off. I want you to jump off the bandwagon of comparing people with people and ministries with ministries. I want you to stop saying, oh, he's better than him, and, and she does a better job than she, and I'm going to follow, and I'm going to do. Don't do that, because that's just human impressiveness. Don't go there. You, you can't do that. Don't go to that spot where you're doing comparisons. In fact, if you find someone who's declaring Jesus on the cross and his resurrection and putting your faith in him, then I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to respect that person 
and to the best of your ability to cooperate with them in whatever they're doing. It's Jesus on the cross. The second thing I'm going to ask you to do after you jump off, I'm going to ask you to speak up. Say that. Speak up, louder. Speak up. There you go. And here's what I want you to do. In your relationships, because that's what the kingdom of God is, relationships, and outside the kingdom of God of relationships, you still have relationships. I'm going to ask you to speak up. And where it is appropriate and where you can, you speak Jesus on the cross resurrected. Now, that's not a slogan. You're not just talking about the Steelers playing Oakland today and in the middle of it go, Jesus on the cross, and then move on. Don't put it on a bumper sticker. Don't just say, I've got to get it in because he said we've got to say Jesus on the cross. It means you need to understand what Jesus on the cross means. What did he do on the cross? And what power did he release? And how does he heal brokenness? You need to understand that. And then in your conversation say, but have you ever considered the fact that Jesus helped take care of that by his death and his resurrection on the cross? You say, I'm not sure I could do that. You better because you're supposed to. What you're supposed to do. You say, but it's not very impressive. There's other... Look, you can't impress God. Don't even try. He's not going to say, oh, well, on a scale from one to ten, that was like a two. I expect you to do a three. Therefore, you'll be poor for the next week. He's not, you can't impress him. You can't, you can't get close to impressing him. And you can't impress your culture. You can't do that. They've got high tech, and they've got great orators. They got, you're not going to be able to, to go mano a mano with them. You're not going to say, hey, I'm as good as that. Who cares? Because there's always somebody better. But you've got to say, Jesus Christ, Jesus on the cross. You say, yeah, but, but the culture has just, just, just got a hold of us. And well, your problem is you don't see the full picture. Let me show you the full picture. Nope, wrong one. There you go. Huh? The dude does not know. That's Mama Bear. I'm telling you that Jesus on the cross has been untamed for centuries, tearing up the culture. And do you think he's not coming into yours? And I want to tell you that when you declare Jesus on the cross, it is an invitation for Jesus to come in and tear up the culture where you are and to fight and break down the resistance of the people that are around you. I've watched it happen. It's an amazing thing to me that I sit with someone who's so intellectually superior to me and I'll say to them, here's what Jesus did, and they'll go, wow, that makes sense. Because it's not me tearing up their culture, tearing up their mind. It's Jesus on the cross tearing up their mind. I'll, I'll meet someone who's just bitter and just, just hates the, the organized church, which in many reasons they should. But when I start talking to them about Jesus on the cross, it breaks their heart and they melt and they go, oh, yeah? So what I want to tell you is this. It's not going to be because, it's not going to be because we, we do some magnificent program. It's not because you spoke it so eloquently. It's not because it was the perfect song. It is just Jesus on the cross. He does it all. And you don't have to impress anybody. He's been doing it for centuries. See the whole picture. That Jesus is the wisdom of God and the power of God that he is greater than human control. And you can't impress people that way. Only Jesus on the cross can do that.
So let's be confident in our message. I want to cheat code. This is the message right here. Jesus lived. He died. He rose again. He's coming again. And if you get that, that's all the life you need right there. So not only will you outlive evil, you will help annihilate it. That's his promise. Will you stand? So I want to say it again. You've just heard not a very impressive message, but what you should have heard is the most powerful thing ever in this universe. God died and rose again. And he's changing your life. 